Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Job chapter 3. And uh, we will attempt to work through chapter 3, 4, and 5 this morning. A little bit out of uh, my customary approach of taking it like a verse at a time. But uh, when you're dealing with the book of Job, you're dealing with discourses. And it's kind of hard to dissect them into little chunks. So we're going to uh, look at Job's lament in chapter 3. And then we'll look at Eliphaz's response in chapters 4 and 5. So last week we were introduced to Job's three friends who came with good intentions to sympathize and comfort their friend who had been struck by God with all of these horrible afflictions. However, when they showed up, they were quite dumbfounded by his grotesque appearance, the intense agony of which he was suffering, So they remained silent for seven days and seven nights. They didn't know what to say because Job's pain was so great. They didn't really know how to comfort him. They no doubt wrestled in their mind, how can a righteous, godly man suffer like this And the only answer their defective view of God could muster was that God afflicts great sinners with great suffering. So Job has great suffering, so Job must be a great sinner. It seems to me that their silence, though certainly silence is appropriate at times when people are suffering, But the length of it was cruel because they found themselves unable to offer a word of comfort to their friend. So now in chapter 3, we begin the long poetic section of the book of Job. You can just tell by the way it's, it's written and laid out. It's more in poetic form. But we begin with Job's lament. In chapter 3, Job now breaks the silence by reacting to his prolonged circumstances. Now, probably this has gone on for possibly months. And we find that in this chapter, he's going to curse the day of his birth. This is really quite a dramatic turn in his response to his afflictions. Remember in chapter 1 and chapter 2, when all of this happens to him, he responds in faith and trust in God. It's just, it's amazing the grace of God that he had. But now his faith has been worn down. He has resigned previously to God's will, trusting God, submissive to God, Acknowledging God's right to afflict him. But as time goes on, with there being no evidence that circumstances will improve, no hope of being healed, no reduction in his sufferings, his faith begins to struggle. 
under these conditions, even the strongest faith can be worn down by the blasting winds of unrelenting and unmitigating and undiminishing storms of life that seem never to leave. And in the midst of this struggle, he erupts with what seems to be very bitter feelings towards his life. Notice, he believes that his afflictions come from God. That will be evident as we read through chapter 3. But he does not curse God. He curses the day of his birth, but he does not curse God, and that's significant. Job is not forsaking God. Job is is vexed and struggling with understanding why he is suffering. He does not understand it. The inner turmoil, turmoil has so built up within his heart that he turns his frustration inward. And many a saint have found themselves in similar times of darkness. As we begin in reading chapter 3, I've broken it down into three sections. The first one is that he's going to curse the day of his birth and basically the first ten verses, he's going to wish that he had never been born. So let me start there. I'm going to be reading chapter 3, verse 1. Afterward, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night which said a boy is conceived. May that day be darkness. Let not God above care for it, nor light shine on it. Let darkness and black gloom claim it. Let a cloud settle on it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. And as for the night, let darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful shout enter it. Let those who curse it, who curse the day, who are prepared to rouse Leviathan, Let the stars of its twilight be darkened. Let it wait for light, but have none. And let it not see the breaking dawn, because it did not shut the opening of my mother's womb or hide trouble from my eyes. So he just explodes with this lament that he wishes he had never been born. He wishes that the day and the night upon which he was born, his birthday never came to pass. That he never would have been born at all. You know, one of the famous movies around Christmas time, It's a Wonderful Life with Jimmy Stewart. Remember, he has the same attitude. He wishes he'd never been born. And this is where this godly man now finds himself. He wishes that the day of his birth had never happened at all. In verse 8, he makes reference to Leviathan. Some translations may not have that word in there, but it seems to be the best way to translate the Hebrew word. And in this context, what Job is saying in verse 8 
is that if there are professional cursors, may they have cursed that day so that the Leviathan, who is a, a, a sea monster, a sea creature, who is known to bring chaos and destruction and death, that he would have just consumed the day so it never occurred. That seems to be the idea of verse 8. So he begins by saying, may that day never have come. Well, it did come. So now in verses 11 through 19, he wishes, well, okay, it came, I was born, but oh, if I would have, should have died on the day I was born. So he wishes that he would have died after he was born on that day. Verse 11, why did I not die at birth? Come forth from the womb and expire. Why did the knees receive me and why the breast that I should suck? For now I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept then. I would have been at rest with kings and with counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold who were filling their houses with silver or like a miscarriage which is discarded. I would not be as infants that never saw a light. There the wicked cease from raging. Talking about death here. And there the weary are at rest. The prisoners are at ease together. They do not hear the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there and the slave is free from his master. So basically, now in his misery, he acknowledges that the day of his birth did come. He was born, so he has a death wish. And the, de the depth of his despair so reflects a mind that has fallen to an abyss of darkness because he wants to die. His faith, previously anchored to God, is now being tossed to and fro by all the, the waves and winds of his circumstances. And he finds himself in the depths of despair. And the only way out that he could envision it is for him to have died. And he wishes the day never came. The day did come. But why didn't I die once I was born? So I wouldn't have to go through everything I'm going through now. Well, he was born. He didn't die. And so now in the rest of his lament in verses 20-26, through 26, he really cries out, then why must I live and suffer so? Why can't suffering be short? Why must it last? So he cries out in verse 20, Why is light given to him who suffers and life to the bitter of soul who longs for death but there is none and dig for it more than for hidden treasures who rejoice greatly and exult when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden and whom God has hedged in? For my groaning comes at the sight of my food and my cries pour out like water. For what I fear comes upon me and what I dread befalls me. I'm not at ease, nor am I quiet. And I am not at rest, but turmoil comes. So Job's complaint is that if God brings suffering, He shouldn't allow it to last so long 
He should bring the suffering to an end through death. God should not prolong our torment with ongoing miseries. And that what, what we have here is a, is a child of light walking in darkness. A man who knows God, but the love of God, the favor of God has been eclipsed and he is walking in the gloom of darkness and the depths of depression. He does not see God. He does not feel His presence. And he feels abandoned. And so in chapter 3, he pours out his heart, his despair, his lament. A couple of observations on this chapter before we move on. But notice that Job is not wrestling with who caused his afflictions. He knows it's God. He's not blaming Satan. He's not blaming the Sabaeans or the Chaldeans or the wind or the fire. He knows it comes from God. He understands that God controls all things. That's not in doubt in his mind. What he questions is not the the question of who did this, but why did you do this to me, O God? So it's the question of why, not who, that dominates his thinking. The general understanding of the ways of God, even for Job, including his three friends, was that God deals with mankind generally on the basis of retribution. You reap what you sow. Job is not aware of any sin in his life that would bring this kind of suffering to him personally, so he doesn't understand the why question. Job doesn't know what we know from chapter 1 and 2. We know that. We can kind of grieve with Job because he doesn't know what we know from chapter 1 and 2. That he's a godly and a righteous man and all of his afflictions are not because of his personal sin. It's because God is using Job as a test case to show Satan the character of true faith. That it's not a mercenary faith. That Job doesn't just worship God because God blessed Job. But it's deeper than that. But Job doesn't understand any of that. So by cursing the day of his birth, Job's despair has called into question the wisdom of God's providence. He's not cursing God, but he is struggling with the ways of God. Why, God, did you ever let me be born? Well, I was born. Why didn't I die right then? Well, I continue to live then, but why must my suffering be so long? He is questioning the wisdom of the providence of God. And he's expressing his disapproval of God's plan to make him. He's complaining against God. Have you ever been there? Our minds can seek into this kind of hopelessness. And we have greater light than Job did. We have greater promises from God than Job did. We have the whole canon of Scripture which he did not have. And yet we can find ourselves in similar circumstances of struggling and complaining against God's providence. The greater light that we have should provide some encouragement to us. 
For example, David in Psalm 119 said, My soul cleaves to the dust. Revive me according to your word. Because David knew that there was hope from God's word when our soul is cleaving to the dust. We have that word. And then later on in Psalm 119, verse 50, David says, This is my comfort and my affliction that your word has revived me. There's a great comfort that comes from the Word of God whenever we're struggling and we can't make sense of things, but we have the promises of God. We have the Word of God to encourage us if we would only go there. But even with this, still, we can struggle. Our faith can call into question the providence of God of why circumstances happened the way they have. We have more revelation than Job, but we still understand his struggling. The second thing about chapter 3 that's very important to point out is that Job does not consider suicide. In spite of the intensity of his suffering, in spite of his desire for death, he does not think about taking his own life. He does not make plans to do it. He doesn't contemplate that. He knows that is totally wrong and, and inappropriate. It's interesting, later on in Job chapter 14, verse 5, Job will say that man's days are determined. The number of his months is with you, that is with God, and that his limits God has set so that he cannot pass. And there's a recognition there that our days are numbered by God. The day of our birth, the day of our death. Those are in God's plan. God has determined it. God has set the limits. It's in God's control. That's what He controls. That's His prerogative. I must not try to usurp that and take control and take my own life. So there's no thought here of Job to commit suicide. Because he knows that his, his days are in God's hands and he's still willing to leave them in God's hands. Though he desires death, he's not taking any action to bring it about. I think that's an important observation to point out here. Part of the idolatry of our own age is that we humans think that we control human life so that we can kill our babies in the womb we can euthanize our elderly. We can approve and encourage self-murder because we've rejected the, the truth that we are created in the image of God. Every human is. And if we're created in the image of God, human life is sacred. God owns it. Only God has the right to end it. God had the right to begin it God only has the right to end it. But in our self-conceit and our own idolatry, we think we should have the right to do with life as we see fit. And if the baby in the womb is in, inconvenient for me, I can kill it. And thank God for the blood of Christ that can forgive all kinds of sins. But the world basically says that Suffering is bad. Suffering is evil. And if you're suffering so bad that you're miserable, 
then it's appropriate for you to just end your life. Take your life. But they don't realize that suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. But it's the self-idolatry of our own age to think that it's within our power, our authority, our right to end life on those circumstances. Now, talking about capital punishment, which is endorsed by God, I'm talking about this kind of suffering. We fail to see that God's people all, for God's people, all suffering has a redemptive purpose in God's plan. Even the most severe suffering, Job's suffering, has a purpose in God's plan. And so does ours. God's wisdom is infinite. His goodness is infinite. His love for His people is infinite. And yet He still ordains sufferings and trials and afflictions which we cannot understand. Because of the weakness of our flesh, we can easily end up in Job chapter 3. We just don't understand it. We're wrestling with it. And even the saints of God sometimes have wished they had never been born. Well, this is where Job is. He's human. He's not a super saint. He has feelings. He has ambitions. And all of that has been destroyed and laid, laid bare on the ground. And he's just pouring out his heart. He's being honest. And for that, we can be blessed by the honesty of his heart, though his faith is struggling. Well, now comes Eliphaz in chapters 4 and 5 for the first response from the first friend. So starting in chapter 4, we begin these three rounds of verbal, kind of a verbal tennis match. So Job has lobbed his response across the net. And his three friends, four counting Elihu at the end, are on the other side of the net ganging up against Job. And they're firing back their responses. And he'll fire back a response. And it's just back and forth it's like a tennis match going, going on. As we review their messages, it seems that Job and his three friends, again, all believe basically in the general principle of retribution. And a lot of what they're going to say is true. Some of it is not. We know that overall, the general counsel of these three friends is not going to be good. Though there are many truthful things in what they will say throughout these speeches. But if you read at the end of the book, and a lot of people when they pick up a mystery, they always go to the end of the book to kind of see how it ends. If you go to the end of the book of Job, we, we hear this. And it came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves and my servant Job will pray for you. For I will accept him so that I may not do with you according to your folly because you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. 
So even though much of what they say will be true, the way they say it, there's going to be problems. And ultimately, what God says, you haven't spoken what is right like my servant Job has. So we need to keep that in mind as we kind of work through these, these discourses. Exactly what God means here will come clearer, I think, as we work through them as well. But the first one to speak is Eliphaz. And Eliphaz is probably the most prominent of the three friends. He's the most eloquent. Uh, his speeches are twice as long as the other two guys. And so he is, he is the most articulate and expressive of the three. And he also comes with a vision from God to add additional authority to his message. So, so Eliphaz is going to speak first. And we find his, his, uh, his message to Job in chapters 4 and 5. So the first thing we see him saying is, Job, you need to practice what you preach. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered, If one ventures a word with you, will you become impatient? But who can refrain from speaking? Behold, you have admonished many, and you have strengthened weak hands. Your words have helped the tottering to stand, and you have strengthened feeble needs. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your heart your, your hope? So what he begins to say to Job is that, Job, you have been godly. You have helped the weak. You have strengthened those who, who are tottering. You, you've ministered to other people in their times of sorrow. Now sorrow has come to you. You need to practice what you preach. Now you're coming unglued. You're not listening to your own counsel that you gave to other people. So that's basically the first six verses of his opening response to Job. In effect, he's saying, Job, you're a big, fat hypocrite. You suffer and you're impatient. You're dismayed. And yet you've counseled other people and you've helped them to, to become strong. But you're not. You're suffering but you're not even listening to the counsel you've given others. Your lament indicates that you're not abiding by the truths that you gave to other people. You should listen to yourself. You should take your own advice. There's really no love here at all. There's no comfort. This all assumes that Job is guilty they assume the guilt until he's proven innocent in their eyes. And yet, love is patient. Love is kind. Love believes all things. Hopes all things. But there's no love here. It's just immediately responding to what they think Job is guilty of. And then in the next section, we have the law of retribution. Now, he's going to bring this up. And this is basically going to go from verses 7 through 21. And he'll break this down into several sub points. But notice 
in verses 7 through 9, he, he emphasizes this principle. Look at verse 7. Remember now, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the upright destroyed? According to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvested. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of His anger they come to an end. In other words, what he's talking here is the principle of retribution. Those who plow iniquity, those who sow trouble, harvest it. Now that is a biblical principle. You cannot deny that the principle of retribution is un, is biblical. You can't deny it. It's not the only way that God deals with people, but He does deal with people that way. Proverbs 12, verse 21. No harm befalls the righteous, but the wicked are filled with trouble. Now that's a general principle of the law of retribution. And they are taking that principle and they are forcing it on Job. They're saying, that explains your suffering, Job. Galatians 6 7, we find the same principle in the New Testament. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Paul may have actually borrowed this from that expression of Eliphaz. Who knows? But the principle of retribution is that in general, there are consequences to our actions. If we sin, there's consequences. If we walk in obedience, there's consequences. That's a general, valid, biblical principle. But God can deal with us in other ways. He can bless the wicked. God can bring suffering to the righteous. And what they don't know is that this principle of retribution does not apply to Job. But that's their assumption that it does. You're guilty, Job. Your suffering is because of your sin. So God deals with us in many different ways. Uh, but it doesn't fit the circumstances to accuse or apply the principle of retribution to Job. God has many hidden purposes. There are rewards. There are punishments. But God deals in mercy. Undeserved grace. He doesn't judge the wicked at the end of every day. God is long-suffering. Patient. But they want to take this biblical principle of retribution and hang it around Job's neck and accuse him of being sinful. We, the next sub-point that he makes is the proof of nature. And this is kind of interesting in verse 10 and 11. The roaring of the lion and the voice of the fierce lion and the teeth of the young lions are broken. The lion perishes for lack of prey and the whelps of the lioness are scattered. So I think what, what Eliphaz is doing here is saying this, this principle of retribution is even found in nature. Look at these lions. And lions are oftentimes a picture of, of wicked oppressors because they got claws, they got teeth, they attack and devour other people. So apparently they are aware that sometimes lions die 
Sometimes they suffer death. And he's using that as an example that if mighty animals, animals of, of, of great power who terrorize and kill other living things, if they can suffer death and be judged by God, well then so can wicked men. Arrogant, evil men can fall by the judgment of God too, just like lions. That kind of seems to be the idea in my understanding. And then, and most significantly, he now draws his authority from a revelation that he received from God. And this starts in verse 12. He says, now a word. Now, now listen to this, because he's trying to describe this experience that he had with this spirit. He says, now a word was brought to me stealthily, and my ear received a whisper of it amid disquieting thoughts from the visions of the night when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me in trembling and made all my bones shake. Then a spirit passed by my face. The hair of my flesh bristled up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. And then I heard a voice. Can mankind be just before God? Can a man be pure before his Maker? He puts no trust even in his servants. And against his angels he charges error. Here probably fallen angels. And how much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed before the moth, between morning and evening they are broken in pieces, unobserved they perish forever. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them? They die yet without wisdom. So what Eliphaz now says is that basically, Job, let me tell you about a vision that I had. And it was scary. It terrified me. It was in the middle of the night. I went into deep sleep. And that deep sleep uh, is referred to Adam when God put him to sleep to create Eve. It's used of Abraham being put into a deep sleep. So this is a vision from God. And, and, and I saw this vision and I heard this incredible voice. And it told me, and the voice starts speaking in verse 17. Can mankind be just before God? What's the answer? No. Can a man be pure before his Maker? No. We are all sinners. That's the idea. That's the point he's making. And that also is true. No man can be just before God. No man can be pure before his Maker. Because we have all sinned. And Eliphaz understands that. Everything that he says in this response from the Spirit, which we would, you can either assume it's the Holy Spirit or whatever. Some even say it's demonic. But everything that's being said here appears to be true on the surface. So the message is true. Yeah, all men are sinners. But the problem is, is that Eliphaz takes this truth and misuses it. 
This is what's, this is one of the problems with the three friends. Much of what they're going to say to Job is true, but they misapply it. They take a truth and they force it into a circumstance where it does not apply. And this is something we do all the time. We can take God's truth and abuse it by misapplying it or misunderstanding it or forcing it in a situation that it doesn't speak directly to. That's what he's doing. He's take, And by the way, this is a tactic of Satan. Now, we don't hear any more of Satan. I think his stinky breath is, is still here at times. Because what, what Eliphaz is doing is one of the things that Satan loves to do. Satan loves to take Scripture and misapply it and cause harm because of it. Remember when Jesus was being tempted by the devil and Satan quoted Psalm 91. Jesus, go ahead. Cast yourself off the height of the pinnacle of the temple. And don't worry about it because the angels will catch you so you don't stub your toe on the rocks below. He quoted Scripture, but he misapplied it. He tried to make Jesus do something foolish in the name of faith. So it takes more than just having truth. It takes wisdom in how to use that truth for the glory of God. And here Eliphaz is taking something that is true, but he's cramming it and forcing it into a situation that does not fit the circumstances. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says, No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So Eliphaz is using this revelation as a confirmation that Job is a sinner. Basically, he's taking, if you look at verse 17 again, can mankind be just before God or can a man be pure before his Maker? And when, when he's quoting that, he's looking right at Job, no doubt, saying, this is your problem, Job. You are suffering because of your sin. You have been unjust. You have been impure. And you're suffering because of it. So he's taking a truth and he's falsely applying it. This is a false diagnosis on his part. He's guilty of spiritual malpractice. He's abusing the Word of God. And Satan specializes in mingling truth with error so as to misapply it to turn the revelation, the pure holy revelation of God rancid because it's being pushed into an application that's not applicable. There's no sympathy here. No gentleness. No comfort. Job is... Guilty of sin. Eliphaz is guilty of using God's truth wrongly to advance his own opinion, his own conviction of Job's circumstances. You know, we got to be careful. I think there's a real uh, lesson here how oftentimes we can misapply the Word of God. We can justify our sinful anger by saying, well, 
My anger is righteous indignation. So we can take the Word of God and misapply it. We can take the Word of God and cover over our sin nature. We can take the Word of God and try to dress up our own sinful thoughts, our own sinful words, our own sinful behavior, and yet we, we think we're, we're all in, in the right in doing so. That's really what Eliphaz is guilty of here. We can, in our own, we can exonerate our own pride and arrogance by assuring ourselves that we're just defending truth. We can excuse our own violent, condemning words and actions because Jesus turned over the tables in, in the temple. So what I'm doing is just like what He's doing. We can take the Word of God and we can use it to cover up and hide our own sin. Proverbs 12 says, There's one who speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. That's what we want. That's what we pray for. So there's, there's many applications of this, but one of the, the truths I think we can glean just from this observation is that Eliphaz is using truth. He understands truth correctly. He's misapplying it. A lot of people run down application, but let me tell you, application is important because you can have truth, but if you don't use it rightly, then it can actually do harm if we twist and distort the precious Word of God. And that's what Eliphaz is guilty of. So basically we see that in Eliphaz's response, first, he accused Job of hypocrisy. Secondly, he's ramming this law of retribution down his throat by saying, this is why you're suffering. Basically there's some... And this is kind of by implication. It's going to get worse as we go through the book. But he's saying basically you're suffering because of your sin. And, and, And God has revealed that to me in a vision. And maybe Eliphaz took this as a word of knowledge for Job. Job, this is a word of knowledge God gave me for you. And he makes a wrong application to Job. This is why you've got to be leery of all this word of knowledge and these kinds of things that are going on today. Uh, Thank God we have the completion of the canon. We have all of God's Word. So that these kinds of words of knowledge or visions or dreams, though, that was the way God had to communicate back then until the revelation was written down. He did that a lot. But we don't look to that now. We look to the Word of God. That's our authority. And so these words of knowledge or prophetic words that are popular today need to always be tested by Scripture. God can still lead us through Impressions, but impressions have to be tested by Scripture. There's a lot of other things that can bring about impressions besides the Lord, although He's sovereign over all of it. But there is a a word here that application of truth is important. And then we come to the third aspect of Eliphaz's response. And that's... uh, starting in chapter 5, the whole chapter which basically says God's faithfulness to save His own from suffering. 
God is faithful to do that. He starts out in chapter 5 and he says, Call now. Is there anyone who will answer you? And to which of the holy ones will you turn? In other words, no one's going to listen to you, Job. You don't have a mediator. Call out now. No one's going to listen to you. Why? Because you haven't repented of your sin. You haven't confessed your sin yet. Verse 2, For anger slays a foolish man, and jealousy kills the simple. And I've seen the foolish taking root, and I curse his abode immediately. And then drop down to verse 7, For man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. And again, all of this is kind of aimed at the foolish man, verse 3, that receives the consequences of his folly in verses 4-6. through And all of this foolish man, Eliphaz is kind of saying, that's you, Job. I've just painted your picture. I've painted your portrait. You're the fool. And all these consequences are because of your foolish behavior. You need to come clean. Man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. That's generally true. But it's especially true of you, Job. That's kind of the way he's heading. And then in verse 8 through 16, he does come with a word of comfort where he calls upon Job to seek after God. He says, But as for me, verse 8, but as for me, I would seek God and I would place my cause before God who does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends water on the fields so that He sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the plotting of the shrewd so that their hands cannot attain success. He captures the wise by their own shrewdness and the advice of the cunning is quickly thwarted. By day they meet with darkness and grope at noon as in the night. But He saves from the sword of their mouth and the poor from the hand of the mighty so the helpless has hope and unrighteousness must shut its mouth. So in this section, he's basically saying, seek God, Job. He'll forgive you. He'll pour His grace upon you. He'll lavish His blessings upon you again if you just but seek God. And implied there, you need to repent of your sin and seek God. And then in 17-27, through 27, notice how he starts out in verse 17. Behold, how happy is the man whom God reproves. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty, for He inflicts pain and gives relief. He wounds and His hands also heal. You see the tenor of what Eliphaz is saying? Job, don't despise God's discipline. He's disciplining you for your sin. Come clean. Seek God. You'll be happy. You'll be blessed if you listen to the reproof of God. Verse 17. Don't despise His discipline. And then he drops down to verse 27. Behold this, we have investigated it, and so it is. Hear it and know for yourself. In other words, everything I've telling you, Job, we've investigated it and it's all true. There's kind of a subtle snare here in some of this advice given by Eliphaz. It's almost kind of like what he's saying. Job, if you repent, God will... Bring all these blessings back to you. And that is really the, that would prove the point of Satan earlier. That would really fall into Satan's playbook. 
Eliphaz is saying, Job, if you just repent, then God will restore you. So in other words, okay, you don't have anything. Draw near to God so you can get all these temporal blessings back. That's the reason to seek God. So you can have your temporal blessings and happiness and health restored. That's not the primary motive for seeking God. And yet that seems to be part of the advice of of Eliphaz here. Well, let me wrap up with just a couple of uh, summaries. First thing is, we, we shouldn't belittle genuine expressions of sorrow. You know, the most godly and holy people can suffer terrible afflictions. And when that happens, don't look down upon the brethren if if their faith waffles or stumbles a bit. We do the same thing, do we not? How easy it is for us to complain against God's providence. Be gentle, be kind, be understanding. We are all human. And as humans, we are frail creatures. And we are far weaker than what we think we are. Just read David's Psalms of lament. I mean, he's going through difficult circumstances. He's just pouring out his heart in laments similar to what Job has done. Jesus wept when Lazarus died. In the Garden of Gethsemane, as he anticipated the cross, he, his sweat became like drops of blood dripping down. We're human. We're frail. Even the Lord's human nature could be, could be wrenched by the anticipation of the sufferings of the cross. And sometimes hurting people, even godly people, who are hurting say things and do things that they would not otherwise. And Job's faith and trust has been beaten down. And it's to remind us that the only reason why we stand is by the grace of God from heaven above. It's not in our own strength. It's not in our own power. The only reason why we would not curse God is because of grace in our hearts. But we can go through terrible circumstances. And when people are hurting and they're struggling in their faith, they need people to come by and try to steady their shaking legs, not condemn them but to draw near with a sympathetic heart. There are times when God brings these tragedies into our life to show us not only our sinful inclinations that we all have, but also just our weakness. And it's to remind us of how vital and important it is for us to walk closely with the Lord every day. Because when we go through struggles, our faith will not stand apart from the grace of God. We need to walk closely with Jesus Christ every day. God gave Paul his thorn in his side to show him his weakness and to subdue his pride. And these are part of the reasons that God sends these afflictions our way is to ultimately work and deepen grace in our hearts. But the weakness of human nature doesn't exonerate our sin. And some of what Job is saying here is not good. He previously rebuked his wife for being foolish and yet by cursing the day of his own birth, 
he is in effect showing himself to be doubly the fool by questioning and challenging and complaining against the providence of God. But this is the weakness of our flesh. So we shouldn't be too critical of Job. We should, we should be sympathetic and understand because if we were there, we would have struggled in the same way. In fact, you and I with better promises, a better understanding of God, we fall into this complaining spirit for far less suffering than what Job endured. God can test us with trials. He can allow us to feel our inner weakness, which is a blessing. He can remind us of our constant need of His mercy and grace, which is a blessing, which we would not know as intensely if everything was going well in our life. The struggles that Paul had in Romans 7, saying, I'm a flesh sold into bondage to sin. For what I'm practicing, that's not what I want to do. And nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present, but the doing of the good is not. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? And thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we can, we can experience these struggles in our life, but they're there to show us our need for Jesus Christ. And through all of this, God did not let Job go. He sustained him and he will sustain you as well. We're to draw near to God. We're to realize that he's our only refuge. He's our only fortress. He's our only strength. And we're to cry out to the Lord in our times of suffering. Lord, I'm a sinner and I deserve far worse than the circumstances I'm in. But show mercy to me, Lord. In Jesus' name, show me mercy lest I sink under the weight of these burdens. We call upon the Lord. We draw near to the Lord. As David said, it was good for me that I was afflicted that I may learn Your statutes. So that sufferings are a necessary part of our sanctification. We learn that from Job. And finally, Job is a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ as the innocent sufferer. And isn't it parallel that like Job, our Lord on the cross did not wrestle with the question of who put Him on the cross. But He wrestled with the question of why. He said, my God, my God. He knew it was God's plan. He knew it was God's will. That God's purpose put Him on the cross. My God, my God, why? Why hast Thou forsaken Me? He struggled with understanding the why. Because as He bore the curse of our sin, part of the curse found in Deuteronomy 28 is a bewilderment of mind. Confusion. And in that moment of sorrow, as He bore the very dregs of our curse, the Lord did not understand at that moment why He was suffering the way He was. Why hast Thou forsaken Me? Well, of course, we know why. Because He was bearing the consequences of our sin. But at that brief moment, He struggled with knowing why. All of this is to remind us that can the righteous suffer? Yes. Job did. Jesus did. We can suffer. 
for reasons not due to our own sin. Can God bring good out of evil? Yes, He can. He'll do it with Job. He did it in an infinite degree on the cross with Jesus Christ. The greatest evil of all human history, crucifying the Son of God, brought about the greatest good of all human history. The salvation of sinners. Yes, God can and will bring good out of the bad things that happen in your life. He's promised to. And can our suffering have a redemptive and sanctifying end? It can most certainly have that. And are all believers gradually being conformed to the image of Christ requiring us to take up our cross? Yes, as well. So there's much to see of the glory of Christ in Job's suffering. There's also much to learn from the sufferings of Job himself and how much we need to walk closely with the Lord. Because apart from that, our faith will sink into discouragement and depression. And it's only the Lord who can sustain us. Let us walk close with Him. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we do thank You, Lord. It's a difficult. It's hard to, to be an outside viewer of someone who's suffering so much. And then to see the counsel of His friends falling so short of what would have been a blessing to Him. And these are struggle, but Lord, it, it's true to life. Because Lord, we all have our own afflictions, our own problems, our own trials. And we don't know why. And we struggle. And sometimes our faith falters. And when we have opportunities to encourage others, let us remember our own weakness, our own frailty. And let us draw near to encourage and give strength and to be a blessing to those who are struggling under the burdens of life. Lord, thank You for what we can learn from this. Bless us. Help us to walk with You. Help us to gain encouragement for our own day of trials. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.